From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am sitting here with Pastor Mel Massengale and Pastor Todd Stanley, and you guys are listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for taking some time to listen to our conversation. Yeah, yeah. So we have a, a couple of um, these are kind of like nuts and bolts of ministry kind of questions. I think um, these are things that you might not think about unless they come across your plate as a pastor. But when they do, I think answering these questions properly and accurately could make the difference between whether or not you maintain a healthy congregation or not. So the first one. The Pharisees thought their public observance of the law made them righteous, regardless of the condition of their hearts. Let's talk about whether it's a good idea to reward church members for holiness. If publicly recognizing someone for their holiness leads to pride or self-righteousness, what are some better ways to incentivize holy living in the congregation? I guess my first question is, how would you determine who is holy and not? Is that based on church attendance or is it based on, like, do they float on a cloud on like, <laughs> you know, you got to put a veil over right. their face so their glory doesn't shine. Or, I mean, like, I don't, that would be the first thing I would ask was, would be like, like, I don't know that I'm opposed to it at face value, but what does that mean? Like, what right. would that look like? Right. <clears throat> practically speaking. Well, we could start by um, delineating between someone who becomes a member of your church versus someone who you consider it to be a good idea to put into platformed leadership. Like what is, what is the difference between those people? Um, and then maybe that is related to holiness. I mean, if we're talking about character, are we talking about morality? Um, certainly seems to be the case that most churches think it's a bad idea to platform a leader who has overt or defiant, uh, sin in their life. I think, I think I would take it a step further and say, I think that the Bible says that's a bad idea. So I don't even think it's churches necessarily. Um, but uh, so the question is, should we platform people with bad character? Well, or is that a reward or so we can use the distinction between platform leadership and members of the church to maybe isolate what we're talking about when we're defining holiness. Okay. Well, Okay, I'm just dominating the conversation. Yeah, go right ahead. I'm the Jordan Peterson of this conversation. <laughs> um, so character character is not strictly biblical or holy. Somebody can be a person of high character and not be religious or not be faithful to God. So just because somebody has high character doesn't necessarily – I think that can be a clue, but I don't think it's necessarily right. – um, means they're holy. And I would say the opposite might be true too because – David, man after God's own heart, he was a true worshiper, He, but he had some deep character flaws. So so by some standards, David could not have been on the platform in some of our churches, um, no matter how good a worship leader he was because of some of the stuff he had done. So, I mean, again, even that I don't think necessarily um, is a good enough delineation. So does that bring forward a distinction between holiness and character then because we we would agree that 
the Bible is setting a standard of being above reproach. If you're going to lead someone in worship, you're going to lead someone as a public spiritual authority. Um, But then we also would recourse to David and suggest that like his character flaws might prevent him from being in public leadership in our churches today. Mm -hmm. So have we conflated the two? in some sense like is it possible that you could have character flaws but you walk with such a reverent heart for god mm-hmm. uh, in your daily life that you would be fit for uh platformed leadership despite the character flaws or is that just create a mess in terms of pr yeah well um you know holiness in 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 the scripture it's one thing to describe god as holy right so god is holy in a way that we're not Mm-hmm. And this is going to kind of maybe get into some theological weeds a little bit. But God is holy because of his singularity, right? He is he is without sin. There is no darkness in him. There is no he is he is singular in his power. He is singular in his authority. He is singular in like God is holy because by his nature he is holy. Mm-hmm. For us to be holy means that we are set apart for God's use, right? We are set apart. And so our holiness isn't really based on our performance. So character, we really honestly we're talking about people how people perform a lot of times. Like this is a person of high mm-hmm. character. They make good decisions and they do, you know, uh they they live in an exemplary way and they, you know, that's that's a performative thing. Uh holiness you know, I'm holy because of because God has called and set me apart, right? Uh, and so, the question becomes: Then, am I living into that calling? Am I living in a way, as Paul said, that is that I'm walking worthy of that calling, right? That I am. Am I living into that thing? Um, and so, so I think I don't know if that for me at least that's helpful. Actually, oddly enough, this is something that I wrote down this morning in uh, in, in some of my my time, my quiet time with God this morning, I wrote uh, that uh, that living an exemplary life is not about perfect performance, but it is about perfect pursuit, right? And what I mean by that is, is the, am I, is, is the complete focus of my life, am, am I pursuing God in a, in a uh, you know, one of the definitions of perfection is absolute, right? And so is, is the absolute pursuit of my life to know Christ. Um, and, and if I'm looking at it in that way, then it's, it's not, it becomes not a performative thing, but, um, but, but a, a longevity kind of thing. Yeah. A, a, you know, if, if someone were to observe my life from a distance, would it be an observable fact, right? That, that the, the arc of my life and the pursuit of my life is moving toward Christ. Now that doesn't, you know, that takes out the performative aspect because it, it allows room for me to have stumbled and to have made mistakes and to, but, but have I going back to the David example? Have I like David been willing to own those things? Yeah, and 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 repent and then and continue moving toward Christ. You know, has has there been a a perfection of pursuit in my life? Is, is that yeah? I don't know if that's helpful. Well, that's yeah, helpful for me it, for sure. It, it becomes an issue of aim, right? So. Yeah. Could we then say that David, in the midst of his sin with Bathsheba, had never changed his aim, his fundamental aim towards God? Like he had to have some part of himself that was calling him back, that was 
some part of himself that inspired Psalm 51 and his cry out of repentance and his cry out to God to not remove the Holy Spirit from him. That had to have been part of his calculus the whole time, right? Or does it just enter back in at the point of repentance? Is that maybe how we define repentance when the aim is, is, is restored to God? Yeah. I think about it like with your kids, um, like your kids, at least for my kids, there've been times they have rebelled. Like they have done what was contrary to my will for them, what I've clearly stated. And they have done something contrary to that. Um, when I brought correction, they had a decision to make. Am I going to come back into relationship or into um, what my father desires for me, or am I going to stay in willful disobedience at that point? Um, And my love for them never changed, and I don't believe their love for me ever changed, but their desire for whatever it is they were doing, it, it, um, it trumped their desire to please me or their desire to do what they knew I'd asked them or told them to do. And so I feel like there's, there's a parallel there for us that have you abandoned your faith in Christ? If you willfully disobey God, well, that's, that is a conversation that I don't know if we have time for, (laughs) or do you just mess up? Do you just, you know what I mean? Like, do you, so I think that like David, for instance, we keep coming back to David, like, would David have repented on his own if Nathan hadn't confronted him? Maybe. Mm. Maybe the Holy Maybe. Spirit would have. Um, and he would have gotten to the place. It would not have been in the timing. It would not have mm. been – it wouldn't have looked like it had. And honestly, it may have been much, much worse for him, like, if his sin wasn't discovered. Right. Uh, so the most merciful thing that probably could have happened in David's life was the fact that God spoke to Nathan and said, mm-hmm. hey, you need to go yeah. confront this guy. So to me, I would tend to believe, no, he strayed. He had, it wasn't part of the calculus. It was, mm-hmm. hey, God's love for me pursues me even in my ditch. He's going to help pull me out of my ditch. It might mm-hmm. be terribly painful. And it might reveal some stuff about my affection because I might think I love Jesus. But if I keep ending up in that ditch over and over, maybe that's a revelation of what I really love or what I really don't love. Yes. God sent Nathan for a reason. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, you can think of it like with the prodigal son too, like he, he runs home to the embrace of his father, but his father doesn't seek him out to embrace him in the midst of his defiance. Right. He, the, the turn happens and then, so the embrace follows. And so, I mean, I think about, and I don't know if this might be, this might be a reach, but when you think about Jesus telling Peter about the rooster crowing, right? Like that's a, in one way that functioned to bring to mind for Peter, what Christ said Mm -hmm. so that he didn't just kind of absentmindedly, uh, abandon Jesus, you know, like, and not remember what Mm -hmm. Jesus said about it. And so, yeah, I used to think that was a gotcha moment. Like I used to think Jesus was like, like when you win an argument, you're like, I told you, I told you. Yeah. I used like, when I was younger, I used to think Jesus was like, just you wait, Peter. Like, yeah. I'm going to get you and you're going to know that I got you. And that wasn't the case at all. It's, it's what you were just saying. Um, that, God was, I think Jesus was trying to connect those moments so Peter wouldn't overlook his carelessness with Christ. Yeah, I was talking to someone recently and talking about the fact that one of the worst things that can happen to us is for us to lose sight of or lose touch with the fact that we are absolutely dependent on God. Mm-hmm. 
you know and so, so those things like that that happen in our lives when the rooster crows and we go oh right those are yeah. those are grace because they're reminders to us of just how dependent we have to be on the lord just how you know just how weak we really are and just how uh incapable we are of doing this thing on our own of living into the holiness that god has called us to live into uh and so uh, you know it's we can either see those things as gotcha moments right we can respond Mm -hmm. that way uh judas responded that way right he ends up hanging himself peter on the other hand recognizes in that moment man i i have to hang on every word that jesus has said I, when he, you know, if I'd listened when he said that in that moment, maybe things might have been different, you know, maybe, and and we can see those as opportunities for us to lean further into the mercy of God and into the strength that he offers to us, or we can, you know, we can hang ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, to take the metaphor a little far, maybe, but. And really, I think that's probably one of the keys to you know, talking about the arc of holiness um, in our lives and pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness. It, I think the difference is what happens when we are either um, corrected directly or indirectly, you know, yeah. like by the spirit or by someone. What is my response? And not just what do I do, but how does my heart respond yeah. in that moment? Like that is a revelation of how how much we look like Christ or don't, you know, and um, was grace available for, well, this is another theological conversation, for Judas? Judas. Was grace available for Judas? Um, well, Peter, he he was confronted with the same failure. P- Jesus didn't sit down and go, hey, you failed. You messed up. You need to apologize, right? But he recognized it. He knew it. Yeah. Um, and he still responded in a way that drew him closer to the Lord. So I think when we mess up and when we fail and when we our character is not strong enough to sustain, you know, us, that's when, um, that's when what's really in us and what we really love is revealed, I think. Yeah. And the scripture suggests at least every, almost every example I can think of when a society or an individual goes through like a collapse moment like that, a realization of their wrongdoing and a repentance that God always puts himself there in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like it, it seems to be the case with the judges and the Israelites, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the whole purpose of sending the judges is to remind his people, I'm right here. I'm yeah. still here. And this is what you did. You know what you did. Even with Cain, you, you know, w- will you not be accepted if you present a proper sacrifice? Mm-hmm. And if you don't beware, sin is waiting at the door, eager to control mm-hmm. you and this sort of thing. He's, he seems to always put himself in that moment. So maybe one thing that people could take away from this pastorally or at the level of the congregation, if they're trying to help someone through a situation like this is if you hit a collapse moment, you should be paying attention for where God is going to show up in that. Like, mm-hmm. like look for that moment yeah. of, oh, okay, this is where I went wrong. Mm-hmm. And we seem to know this, right? Like this is, you can think of this society, like the societally, like the truth reasserting itself. I often think about societies that have gone off the rails or gone sideways. They seem to not like their path is right in their own eyes mm-hmm. until it becomes so obviously wrong yeah. that they can't deny it anymore. Yeah. And then in that moment, the truth reasserts itself. And that might be at the bottom of a gulag, but mm-hmm. it sometimes it still happens, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the when we could get, circle back to this idea of holiness, maybe we can think about 
different instances of human beings entering into most holy places or holy environments. And we think of most holy places, I think many people, their minds go to the Levitical priests, but we can also think about Moses in the, in, at the burning bush. And we can mm-hmm. think about um, Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. And we can think about the prophet Isaiah when he's called into ministry. Like these are all moments where broken people or fallen people are brought into holiness and God does something to them that, uh, well, in, in the case of Isaiah, it's certainly overt. Mm-hmm. But with Moses, it's like, take off your shoes, you're in a holy place. And so does that mean that, does that carry over to what we do as ministers? Uh, when we are in the act of ministry, is that a moment where we should be taking off our shoes because we are in a holy place? Or is this, or is this idea of entering into a holy place reverently, is this uh, somewhat mitigated by the idea of the veil being torn through Christ's sacrifice and us being able to have a more casual familial relationship with the father through the son. I, I, I mean, I talked to our staff, um, not long ago about this, but I think <clears throat> we can become so, f- so familiar handling holy things that we forget what we're doing. Um, like, bomb technicians or, you know, people who have very dangerous jobs when they, when they uh, get into an accident or lose their life on the job. I mean, OSHA will support this with their numbers. It's because they've stopped observing safety routines because they thought Mm -hmm. at some point like, Oh, I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this a long time. And so that's the, that's the, it's a very real danger with those of us who are handling the word of God or worship or, you know, we were talking about the platform earlier. The platform's a really, really, really serious, dangerous place to be if you are immature because it can, it can destroy you. That's why the Holy of Holies, they tie a rope around the foot of the priest because they're like, if he has gone in there and he has not prepared himself, we're going to drag that dude out, Right. And I feel like um, I feel like we don't always approach the things of God that way. Um, and I think I think it probably is uh, reflected in the way a lot of our churches are run and the way we handle just the, we've become so um, familiar with God that there's an aspect of it is that's beautiful, right? That it's not formal. It's more, it's more informal than that. And that's great. Like, I think, yeah. I think it should be personal, but it's become so familiar that we treat it flippantly. It's like, um, my girls would do things at, you know, when they were younger, especially. And I would say, would you ever say that to your teacher? And they'd be like, absolutely not. They'd be mortified. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's because they're so familiar with us. They don't treat us the way they would if we were just a little, a little bit more of a stranger, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, if we were a little more removed. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I do want to... One of the things that comes to mind for me is just... When we... I know growing up, like, you didn't run in the church and people wore suits and, uh-huh. like, you know, you you couldn't take coffee or whatever into yeah. the auditorium. Like It's God's house. Yeah, even if there was, like, we had a dinner, there was a hall for that. The food did not yeah, leave yeah. that room, you know, it was that kind of thing. And um, I, I'm not advocating that we go back to that because I honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I buy into the idea of sacred spaces, if that makes sense. 
um, because the veil has been torn. Like I always, and, and please forgive me if you've been to Israel and you had an encounter with God there, I don't want to discount your encounter with God. But there is a part of me that goes, why did you have to go all the way to Israel to experience the presence of God in that way? That, that ground is not any more holy than the ground that I'm standing on now. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that there's not something significant about connecting with history and going, the Apostle Paul stood here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? It makes it, there's a, there's a connection, a re, a, like a, it makes it more real, mm-hmm. if, that can, if, if I can say it that way. But that's, that doesn't make that space any more holy or sacred. The, the New Testament model, right? And what the New Testament says is that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You are a sacred space. I am a sacred space, right? How should that inform the way, not only that I, that I approach going to church, but how I live my life? Mm-hmm. If, how does it approach how I interact with other people? How does it, how, you know, how does it inform, you know, the, everything, mm-hmm. right, about my life? And I think that's what we forget. That's what we lose connection with, that that you and I, as as people who have been invited into the family of God, have become the indwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Man, that that's to me that's a way heavier thing than to go. Well, how should I conduct myself when I go to church? It's like no, 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 no. God lives in me. How does that change how I live? Right. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, I mean, it's it's. It's radical and revolutionary, and it, I mean, and it's a, it's a heavy thing, and and I know I don't, I don't approach it with the reverence that I should every day. Mm-hmm. I forget, I lose sight of it, and man, like, that's a big deal. That's a big, that's a, that's a big yeah. deal. So we've we've come across, I think, something really special here because we have this just excellent analogy with the bomb technician that's fantastic i really do think that um what we see in life is that if we stop paying attention even if we're excellent even if we're really good really talented really developed highly trained when we stop paying attention we make mistakes attention Mm -hmm. is required of everyone Mm -hmm. of every person even tom brady playing quarterback if he stops paying attention doesn't matter that he's a seven-time Super Bowl champion, he'll mm-hmm. he will play terrible because of his attention. And so, when we think about the sacred and the profane idea, right? Um, just maybe to put a picture on this, if you walk into like St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, and you get just get this feeling of holiness and gravitas and significance and yeah. this contact with the presence of God in that moment. You shouldn't be seeking out that place for that presence. You should be trying to bring that presence into the profane. Mm-hmm. And, and so people, they understand this concept when it comes to bringing the profane into the sacred, mm-hmm. which is why they have all of these rules against, you know, some churches will have these rules against bringing food and coffee and all of yeah. this into the sacred place. But it seems to be less understood how, how because of what Jesus did, mm-hmm. we can take the sake we can take the sacred into the profane, and that is the gospel, right? Yeah. Like that's 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 the whole purpose of it. So in the Old Testament, God's people were called to not touch all these unclean things because by touching them, they would become unclean themselves, right? They would be contaminated by the unclean. What we see in Jesus is the converse. 
that when Jesus touches unclean things, they become clean. Mm -hmm. And God has called us to live in that way. We have been given the same spirit, right? The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in me. Our calling is to touch unclean things and to make them clean by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a different paradigm in the New Testament. It's, it's inside out rather than outside in. And we forget that all the time, all the time. Yeah, that's a really great insight. Man, when I think about stuff like that and those little light bulbs go off for me, I feel like I'm staring into like a fractal mirror of beauty that is just <laughs> impossibly designed like i just i don't know it's really impressive to me I, and that happens all the time whenever i'm reading the bible but especially like whenever you guys are talking about that it really kind of hits well if i can jump back in i don't know where this fits in exactly but um when you mentioned touching unholy things it made me think of this but like michael you referenced the judges earlier <clears throat> and all these judges were raised up for a season for a specific time for a specific purpose and they serve their purpose and most of them had some serious flaws and the most notable is probably Samson, the one that most people know the most. And he had some huge issues. Um, and God used him in spite of his issues because he had a purpose and plan. And, and, and we should never be fooled into thinking as ministers that, Hey, God needs me so much that I can live with a secret sin or I can, cause at some point, <laughs> We cannot handle holy things continually if uh, we're not being redeemed. If we ourselves are not holy, God won't allow that because he, he, he is holy. And so, you know, I've thought about people like, um, I mean, we're an Assemblies of God church, but I've thought of people like Jim Baker or um, Jimmy, Swagger, Jimmy Swagger. These or, were prominent yeah. Assemblies of God ministers back in the day Yeah, that uh, big names and their names got bigger when the scandals hit, like they were known worldwide and come to find out like people were saved into their ministry millions were given to missions over the years yeah. through their ministry and they were you know jimmy swagger was literally hanging out at strip joints and you know what i mean yeah. like he would preach and then go and and i've had people say well why would and i've been part of a church in the past that went through that pastor went through a moral failure why would god allow that to happen and this is my salvation even real yeah. And it's like God loves people so much that he'll use flawed, broken people, even unrepentant people for a season. Right. But that season will end at some point. And so the difference is repentance or unrepentance. If I'm repentant, if I keep going and not just just with my mouth, but in my heart, I'm going, okay, God, I'm still pursuing holiness even though I've messed up. Um, none of us are perfect, right? Like n there is not a minister who stood on a platform this last weekend and preached that is perfect anywhere. Um, but it all comes back to our willingness to repent, to confess our sins to God, yeah. to, you know, to, to acknowledge our need for him, going back to what you were saying. And so I think we can do that for a season. God can make us holy for a holy purpose for a while until our unrepentance gets the best of us. So, yeah, there seems to be, and this is just an absolutely terrifying thought for a minister. Um, there seems to be a distinction between your work and you mm -hmm. as, a, as an individual. And mm -hmm. so it is possible by Samson's example and by other Cyrus and other examples, there seems to be the case that God will keep and accept your work as valid and you might be lost. Mm -hmm. So your work actually is a net positive for the kingdom, but that doesn't mean that you are covered in the righteousness of Christ if you're not covered in the righteousness of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's kind of scary because, you know, like it is the case that Ravi Zacharias's work yeah. lives on and that the people became Christians and were mm-hmm. edified as Christians because of his work. Yeah. And you could, you could listen to his work today. And as long as you were sufficiently able to separate, you know, mm-hmm. his work from who he was purported, to was be. purported to be as an <laughs> yeah, individual, allegedly. Yeah. Um, then you could benefit from it still. Um, but that's, that's scary because it's like, we can build this body of work and then think that that justifies us. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the mm-hmm. temptation is. And that's where that, the, you end up going sideways, right? Because you yeah. forget your need for the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. That's so <laughs> that's, the end. We'll, we'll fix that in post. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was uh, hoping for a better transition, but um, <laughs> alas, we've come up short. Um, let's talk about lust. <laughs> there it is. Um, I think Jesus himself is the only adult male ever to exist who hasn't committed the heart adultery as defined in Matthew chapter five. Why is it a good idea for pastors to never consider themselves immune to the power of lust? So I can think of two in- interesting properties of the phenomenon of lust. First is how extremely effective lust is at undermining rational thought. And this is why it's not uncommon for a person to give up his or her entire life and everything they've worked for only to indulge their lust for a handful of minutes. The second property of, uh, is how lust tends to anesthetize our heart against conviction. And this is why a person will have an affair and then feel terrible about it. But once the lust returns, they will repeat the affair as if the crushing feeling of guilt is no longer present at all. Now, I want to know if you have, if you'd like to add any properties to the phenomenon of lust. Um, and what, what are some precautions that a pastor can take to mitigate the chances of lust impacting his or her ministry? Yeah. Um, I, maybe I'm inferring this, but I assume when you're talking about lust, you're talking about sexual lust. Is that? Yes. Okay. So, so I think that's true. And I think sometimes pastors struggle with lust, but they don't even realize it because they're not struggling with sexual temptation. Right. In a broader sense, I think they lust after something, Mm -hmm. but it's not sexual gratification. It's, I want a big church or I want, you know, like they are, and and it's more than just like, I I wish I had something like that or, you know, it would be Mm -hmm. nice to, you know, and it, it gets into an area where it's like, a driving desire. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so, you know, scripture talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, mm-hmm. right? As kind of being the three pillars of, of sin, right? The three. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think all of us have lust. It's, it may not be a sexual thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly what, what Mel was saying. Like the, but what, what I think the, the earmark of lust, and you kind of touched on it earlier, actually, when you were talking about how that there'll become this thing that, uh, that gets elevated in our affections to the point that we are willing to pursue that thing in disobedience to mm-hmm. God, right? Um, all of that is motivated by lust, mm-hmm. right? Whether it be making, a, you know, taking a shortcut in my business, so you know, like doing something illegal or doing something unethical in order to, you know. Well, well, I mean, let's just get really personal with people. Overeating, yeah. Uh, that's that's a lust issue, right? I mean, like, I'm going to overconsume right. something because it tastes good. I just like it, h- how it tastes in my mouth. And so I'm going to continue to eat it, even though I'm not hungry or, you right. know. Like, like, and, and, 
And and just so we're clear, that's not about weight. Yeah. Right. That you you might you might be perfectly fine on a you know the BMI scale. Right. But you still are overeating because you're using food as a means of comfort. You're mm-hmm. using food as a means of coping. You're yeah. using food as a you know in a hedonistic way. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a result of lust. Mm. So there's a story of. Uh, I don't think this is apocryphal. I think it might come from Victor Frankl. No, it's Ellie Wiesel uh, told this story in this book, Night, about a father and a son in Auschwitz, both starving, um, and bread is thrown to them, and the father murders the son in his effort to get to the bread. Now, look, huge grace, because like they're in Auschwitz, and they're starving. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not there. I've yeah. never experienced <laughs> that. I don't know what I would do. Yeah. Right. Um, but... It is also the case that there were people in those desperate conditions who chose to mm-hmm. walk in virtue, even yeah. in those conditions. Yeah. And so we have to think about, like, we could say for the purposes of our theology that lust is couched or is nested under the umbrella of, like, covetousness, let's say. And it's something, whatever it is that is, like, we see it and it tends to erode our rational thought. It tends to take over the better angels of our nature, mm-hmm. to use a colloquial phrase. Um and it can lead to, and when when your conditions become more desperate, it can lead to things that you would increasingly never be able to see yourself doing. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so for instance, yeah. if you're like a pastor who really wants to have a mega church, and then things start to happen where, like mm-hmm. for instance, a pandemic, um, and then it becomes, <laughs> for example, yeah. and just then hypothetically, all just of a sudden, yeah. like say you were like three steps away from getting mm-hmm. there, and then this thing happens that was completely outside your control. Um, certainly it's the case that there were pastors who painted themselves into corners with their words um, in the wake of COVID. And when that, when all of that unfolded, because it was like all of my dreams are being dashed in this moment. Mm -hmm. And the, the desire for that thing overcame the wisdom of what I should say in this moment. Mm -hmm. And it betrayed what it did is it like uh, one of the uh, friends of the back 40 said that COVID revealed character. It, mm-hmm. it didn't change character; it revealed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was Gerald Brooks, Gerald I believe. Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that really struck me when he said that because yeah. that's like, okay, yeah, uh, you, you, you totally upset the paradigm. You totally change everyone's goals all at the same time. And if you happen to be driven by lust in that moment, then yeah. that's going to show itself as yeah. a problem. And so you might be able to structure your whole life or your whole ministry around concealing this problem. But when the structure changes, then yeah. you're left out in the open and yeah. it ends up being revealed. And yeah. so I don't know if there's a question in that, but okay, here's the question. How do you separate lust or covetousness from ambition? Because it seems like if we're just ambivalent about what we're doing, that's not good either. I think it's hard. And I think um, I think we it's something we have to constantly monitor. It's like driving down the road if... Um, you know, talking about paying attention, right? If you're not paying attention, you're going to drift on the road. And and as long as you stay between the lines, you're going to drift a little bit. But when you start drifting outside the lines, that's where um, you should have some safeguards in place to go, whoa, 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 hey, wait a second. Maybe it's your spouse or maybe it's a board member mm-hmm. or maybe it's a staff member. But somebody that can go, hey, we're doing this or, hey, you're talking about this, but – it feels like ambition. I mean, or it feels like it's something more than, hey, God's calling us to do this mm-hmm. um, right. in a risk-taking, ambitious way for the glory of God. And it feels more about, I'm building my kingdom. And, and that's hard. 
But you have to have people in your life that can say that kind of stuff to you to, at some degree, to some degree or another. Yeah. And I feel like uh, anything that if it were removed would cause me to sink into despair is an indicator that there's an unholy or unordered, disordered affection there. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm not talking about whether or not I would mourn or grieve the loss of something. I'm right. talking about if it would cause me to sink into despair. Right? If it would do significant damage to my sense of identity. If it would... Um, cause me to question the goodness of God, yeah. right? If that, you know, so, so those are the things, those are the indicators of lust, right? If, if this thing were removed and, and, and I am unable to, to continue <laughs> forward, right? That, that's, you know, and so, uh, I may have shared this story before, but I, uh, I had a, a guy who was on my worship team at a church that I served at years ago, um, who was a saxophone player, gifted saxophone player, right? Um, but he didn't want to come to rehearsals. And honestly, he was good enough that he probably didn't have to. He could just jump in and, you know, had the kind of chops where he could just play on Sunday and, and fit what we were doing and whatever. Um, but I told him, I was like, hey, uh, this, isn't, this isn't fair for the rest of the team. Right. If you're not going to be able to make rehearsals, because rehearsals are about more than the music, they're about building community. They're about making sure that we're all on the same page. It's an opportunity for us to pray together. It's an opportunity for us to grow together. It's like you know all of these things. Like it's it's not just about whether or not you can pull off the music without being here. So if you can't be at rehearsals, you can't. I'm not going to be able to use you on on the weekends. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, he was man. He was furious with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to the went to our senior pastor, in fact, because he I mean he was upset, and I was I was preventing him from using his gifts, and so he went to the senior pastor, and the senior pastor said, I'm, "That's that's how that's how we do things, <laughs> you know. Like I'm, uh, you have to be at rehearsal, and of course, then the man the guy was angry with the pastor, and the pastor asked him this question. He said, "Let me ask you," he said, "If you couldn't play." saxophone tomorrow something happened you lost a hand whatever and you couldn't play saxophone tomorrow what would you do and the guy without hesitation and as seriously as he could be said i would probably put a gun in my mouth right and so then that opened up an opportunity for a conversation about man you you have way more to offer than just saxophone player Right. And, but, but I think that there are times that we, we have the, that kind of investment in our identity mm-hmm. into the something that we're doing, whether it's pastoring a church, whether it's being a saxophone player, whether it's, you know, and, and those are indicators that there is, there's something amiss there. And, and maybe that's not necessarily a lust issue. I, you know, I, I, I think probably you could tie it back to that if you if you dig deep enough that comes back to some unmet desire and some desire that we've allowed to run amok mm-hmm. in our lives which is what lust does right uh you see this thing you know the enemy says did god really say mm-hmm. right it doesn't it look good you know mm-hmm. uh you, did god really say you shouldn't touch it or eat it or you'll surely right. die well you know all in and, and then 
and then that desire begins to fester and run amok and then we find ourselves acting on it and then you know and so that may be a little more than we need to get into but uh all of that just to say there's all this disordered affections in our lives there are those things that and and that's what lust does for us is it it then asserts itself in a way that says i have to have this more than more than jesus um I was talking to someone recently, and I know I'm going a long time, but I was talking to somebody recently, and there was a significant sacrifice that he felt like God had called him to, and he was wrestling with it, and he said he was praying about it, saying, God, you know, this is something that I've prayed for. This is something that I've wanted, and now I feel like that that you're asking me to lay it down, and he said, he said, I felt like the Lord spoke to me so clearly and said, I'm the finish line. You know, he said, what you get is me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, if there's anything that I would not be willing to lay down in order that I might know Christ mm-hmm. more fully, that we're, you know, and, and I'm, uh, in order that I might be fully sacri- submitted to him, that's an idol, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. Right, that's Abraham and Isaac, right? Like, that's the, you know, he just w- wants a son, and then he gets it, yeah. and it's like, okay, now you're going to be tested. Yeah. Because is this really what you wanted, or did you really want God? Yeah. Like, let's take apart this idea of, like, of lust and calling a little bit more, because if there is a thing that you're after, that if it was removed from you, you would fall into despair. Is it safe that we can say that that's not a calling? Because when I think about this, um, I think about, for instance, Bible reading. Um, I just read all the time and I don't even know why I'm doing it. Like I, there's no, like at the present moment for me, there's really no clear path to like utilizing it, uh, you know, it, it like a, from, from a platform, let's say. Um, but it doesn't matter. Like it, it, in a sense, like it's just, I'm just doing it because I'm doing it. And I think to myself, if the churches in America tomorrow were shut down, I still would just do it. And I don't mm-hmm. know why exactly, but I just know I need to be doing that. And that, when I think about, okay, what what is so durable in your life that everything, you could lose everything else and you would still just do it. That to me is what a calling ends up being. Is that right or wrong to say? Is there a separation between, like, if, if, you, if something is coded in lust or in mm-hmm. overambition, does that mean it's not a calling, or does it just mean that you're viewing it the wrong way? Uh, I, I don't think that it means it's not a calling necessarily. I think about Saul. Saul mm-hmm. was anointed and called to be mm-hmm. king by God, right? Uh, but then his lust got the best of him, his yeah. desire for power his desire for you esteem. know esteem like mm-hmm. he wanted to please the people he wanted to you know all that got the better of him and he disqualified himself from the thing that God had called him to do not only not only mm-hmm. that but i mean like like his heirs lost the kingdom right yeah. like god gave the kingdom to somebody else and yeah. so but I, but he was called to be there mm-hmm. god put him there well and we talked about earlier whole um, handling holy things and that literally was what he was doing. He yeah. was like, hey, I can offer sacrifice. And Sam was like, no, you cannot. You can't do that. that you're not allowed to handle these things. Yeah. And um, and again, that's I think we start thinking too much of ourselves, like, oh, our church is doing good. It's because of me. Um, and now a calling has become something else entirely. Um, you know, that's not, it's not what God intended, but that's where we took it because we're not, staying between the lines we're not stewarding our call very well and um and it it doesn't happen intentionally i've never known of a pastor that had a moral failure and i've talked to a bunch i've never talked to one who was like you know what i got called to this and it just wasn't very much fun and i thought how can i wreck my kids and my family and Mm -hmm. my 
um, one of the best exercises, I don't know if we've talked about it on here before, that we ever did was uh, in college was um, Garland Owens, you know Garland, mm-hmm. he's been with us a couple times. He was the professor of youth ministry at the, the university that I went to. And he asked us in a class, um, it was a bunch of future youth pastors, he said, all I want you to do today is make an exhaustive list of everything you would lose in your life if you had a moral failure. Oh. And and he said, you know, I, I want you to write it down, I want you to make the list, and then that's it. And so we turned in a list, and then he gave it back to us, you know, but um, it was it was sobering you know, to look and go, whoo, and really think about what are the things in my life that I would lose? Um, cause honestly, your job is probably the tip of the iceberg, you know, like mm-hmm. your income. Um, that's, that's the easy part. You can replace your income. It's real hard to replace your family or your spouse or your good, um, name. good name. Yeah. Your reputation. You know, those are the kind of things that we don't always think through when we're gripped by lust, especially sexual lust, get back there. And so that's one of the reasons it's important for pastors to understand I am never ever immune especially with um with pornography as uh, accessible as it is for pa- for everybody today but for pastors you know you don't have to go into an adult bookstore to buy something or go into a you know a strip club or whatever you can access it anywhere and so what I have to be careful of is to to always be aware of what would I lose if I gave into this kind of temptation that, um, and for some pastors or for some people, it's, it's a bigger temptation than others. And as I've gotten older, just physiologically, my sex drive has changed. I like, I don't have the same sex drive as I did when I was 25, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll edit that out in post too, but cause that's just, that's just our, that's just our physiology. Right. Yeah. Um, and and so it's easy for older ministers to go, well, I don't have that problem anymore. Or it's okay for me to have some hot young uh, assistant and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's like, nope, nope, that's still unwise. It's still unwise to think you're immune from having a moral failure or having you know, lustful desires yeah. or stumbling onto the wrong website. It is important to maintain, you know, Andy Stanley talks about guardrails uh, and everybody in the world has hijacked that, but um, it's important for us to have good guardrails in our lives. And none of us are, a, none of us should be opposed to that. Cause in my experience, the higher you go in leadership, the more accountability you need, not the less, uh, the lower you are on the flow chart, the probably less accountability you need in a lot of ways, but the higher I go, the more I need, not the opposite. Yeah. So on the ground, like, um, one of the things that my first mentor taught me was to never be behind closed doors with a woman who's not your wife. Mm-hmm. And that's a double-sided coin, right? Because there's the issue of the fact that you're in private with a woman who's not your wife and the possibility of lust and like actually, you know, having an affair and that sort of thing. And then there's also the issue of perception. Mm-hmm. So even if you are walking in upright righteousness um, and you practice doing that all the time, like people are going to start thinking, oh, you know, and there's going to be a perception problem that you have to deal with that mm-hmm. you wouldn't have had to deal with had you just followed that policy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, so, and then, then when we talk about like, so that, that's the, that, handles sort of the sexual lust part of it. The other issue with overambition, I know one of the things like you, we had talked about having people in your life regularly to kind of watch that for you. Um, and I know one of the things that we do here at Summit is we have one-on-ones. Mm-hmm. So I know I have, I have my one-on-one with my direct report, Kendall, and um, 
you know, he, he's my spiritual authority, but he's also different from me in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And so there, there's some doctrinal differences. There's some personality differences. Like, and one of the things that I've noticed that works really well because of those differences is we have kind of like an opponent processing thing happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you're listening, like this, I, I stole this from Jordan Peterson, but, uh, the way you can actually demonstrate this or illustrate this for yourself is if you try to move your finger really slow and really precise, just one finger of one hand, like say your left hand and you're moving your pointer finger and then you, you take your other one and you push up against it. And now you can move it much more precisely and much more, and it's much more stable. It's less shaky. That's because you have something pushing up against it. And this idea of resistance applies Mm -hmm. in a lot of places like working out. That's how you get stronger and all these things. And so, um, having a good thing to institute in your church might be to have one-on-ones with, with, you know, individuals, but yeah. in your staff. And, and, and yeah. also it doesn't have to be one-on-ones between people who you think would get along. Mm-hmm. Like it could be one-on-ones between people who are different because if, if Kendall, as, as I'm presenting my ideas to him, if he gets a sense that I'm just being arrogant or proud, he'll point that out. It's like, yeah. okay, well, where did you see this in scripture? Are you just making this up or are you just mm-hmm. pushing this for some other reason? And so he has the courage to, to do that. And that really helps me, honestly, mm-hmm. like it really does. It really helps me. Um, it helps temper me in my, the formulation of my ideas and my worldview, which is yeah. really what I want. Yeah. And so that's kind of a, an interesting thing, I think. But when it comes to the, the sexual issue, can you speak to, and this is, look, I'm, I'm going to sound like a misogynist here, but whatever. Um, does it, <laughs> do things change for a leader the more power he is perceived to have in terms of the dynamic between himself and females, because it seems to me like that is true. Um, and again, I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush here, but it seems to me that females generally are hypergamous. So they, they would mate across and up social hierarchies. Like that's where their attractions are. Um, and like this is where it gets really, uh, <laughs> there's probably, if there are women listening to this, they're probably screaming. Um, but there's something, there's a, there's a baby in this bathwater when it comes to people who are ascending the ranks of ministry, right? Like, doesn't the power mean something? Doesn't the power in relationship to the vulnerability and the temptation, the presence of temptation, like, doesn't that play a factor? And if you start to ascend in the ranks, doesn't that mean that the temptations are going going to become more prevalent and you should be really careful about that? Um, as a general rule, yes, and and I would say I would say this too that it's not only women that are attracted to power, but men are as well. It just looks different, right? Men are attracted to power because they want power, right? So if I can be near power, then I can by proxy, right? Or or maybe I can be promoted, you know. So so or or we want to tear down systems of power. Sometimes people have mm-hmm. a, a counter reaction to that. Uh, for women, often, not every time, but often, uh, the attraction is is one of security, right? Women tend to want security. And so men who have power, uh, th- there's a perception that they can offer that. They can either financial stability, they can offer uh, be- be- just because they have power, they can protect, they cannot get there. So, and I know these are generalities and, and you know, but... Generally speaking, that's how that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the short answer is yes. The, the, the more authority and, and power 
that that you have been given, the greater your area of responsibility becomes, the 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 more people will be attracted to you. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, and 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 there is caution that needs to go along with that. I mean, uh, who are you going to give access to you? Uh, and yeah, I'll just stop there. I won't have to qualify access. <laughs> um. <laughs> this is not a very spiritual statement, but the more powerful you are, the uglier you can be and still cheat, cheat on your spouse with women, honestly, like, yes. because people will overlook your appearance. And, and that's another reason why I think it's less important, like, or it's, it's more important for older ministers to understand. I haven't aged out of a moral failure, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not exempt from that. Um, and so, so yeah, the, the, the more success you may have in air quotes, you know, whatever it is, um, uh, you know, the, the more, more attracted people are going to be to you. And, and here's the thing too, a lot, there are a lot of broken people in our churches. Um, you know, Todd recently did a presentation with our staff and talked about like broken sexuality, but we all have it, Right. Um, and so there are women that are going to be coming in our churches that have a very broken relationship with a man or men in their lives. And they're going to see a pastor, <clears throat> not even the pastor, but a pastor, a spiritual leader as somebody who is everything that they've ever wanted. And they might not be overtly trying to seduce you, but there's a longing in them for something you may have. And that's where. I mean, I've had conversations with some of our staff and told guys, never, ever, ever meet with that woman because there's just a spirit or there is like something that's like, oh, it makes me uneasy. So like never meet with them. Like, you know, be real careful about the conversations you have with them because we just have to be on guard. We have to pay attention. Yeah. And I think about this, you know, I sometimes think, okay, well, because I, I learned early on the idea of, of the closed door thing mm-hmm. and, you know, and not being behind a closed door with a woman who's not your wife. And I had initially my kind of th- my thought was, well, okay, what kind of pathetic self-control do we have really? Like, but then the answer is it's pretty pathetic. Very. Like it's, it's very <laughs> yeah. pathetic. Like yeah. if we, if we take scriptural precedent and we think of David, who's the man after God's own heart, and that is where he fell mm-hmm. is in that particular arena. Like that's serious stuff. And I like the, what you're saying about Mel, about um, you're not, you don't age out of this. And I think that, right. So if you don't consider yourself as, uh, you know, like a pastoral sex symbol, let's say. <laughs> um, I don't know Is that Rich Wilkerson that, Jr.? Oh, I don't know. Oh, man. Who, who, you in there. <laughs> We've yeah. just been calling out all kinds of pastors today. Uh, Carl, Carl Lentz, he's not, he's not allowed anymore, I don't think. But yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're not, you're not. You're not uh, shirtless in Ibiza yeah. during your summers. but <laughs> And so you start to think, okay, well, I finally have hit a place in my life where I don't have to think about this. Right? Yeah. And yeah. then and then the issue walks through the door. Yeah. And then you're automatically off guard because you're always off guard because yeah. you're not thinking about that kind of thing. And so, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that all of that is very useful for people who, you know, would be listening to this in terms of a pastoral procedure. Well, and here's the thing. And statistics say that about 70% of men regularly look at pornography um, to some degree or another. Uh, And I think the number I saw was at least once a month. 
uh, and I might be wrong on that. But so that means that there are probably ministers that are actively engaging in pornography, whether they are repentant about it or not. But here's the thing. At some point, that is going to manifest itself. It might not manifest itself in a... You know, in a way where you are confronted and it's on the front page of a paper, but it's going to manifest itself in uh, brokenness in your relationship with your spouse. Or it's going to manifest itself in shame when you're going on the platform to preach. It's going to manifest itself some way. Um, And there was, um, well, um, when I was in college, uh, my freshman year of college, there was a girl that I went out with and... Um, we had a, we had a relationship that went too far and I knew it was, had gone too far. And, um, I left that college after a year and went to Bible college and I was doing my thing and I was back on a break and the pastor of that church, his name was Larry Hatfield, wonderful, godly man died a few years ago, but he knew I was in town and he called me and said, Hey, would you want to come preach? And I was like, absolutely. And I preached my first sermon at, at Grand Avenue Assembly of God in Chickasha, Oklahoma. And I'm standing there preaching. And in in the door walks the girl. And uh, it was like the devil punched me in the gut yeah. in that moment. I, I had no no vitality, no life, no, because I was confronted with my sin, Right. I knew that I'd mistreated her, that I hadn't treated her as a daughter of God, as a sister, as somebody's wife someday. And and we may not be confronted in that strong or direct a way, but you're going to be confronted with it at some yeah. point. And you just have to understand there are consequences for everything we do. Even if it seems like we've gotten away with something, we haven't because there's spiritual consequences, relational consequences. And so that's why it's so important to learn from other people's stupidity, learn from my mistakes, you know, figure it out from somebody else and then put the right safeguards in place so that you don't have to hurt the people you love. You don't have to hurt your spouse or your kids or your church or, you know, uh, it's really, really, really important. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good place to wrap this up. Uh, Mel, Todd, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening to the back 40 leadership podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.